if <clears throat> if I could <clears throat> excuse me if I could remove Christ from your life where would you be today what kind of person would you be like today if there was no Christ there's no gospel there's no hope what would you be like what would your life be how would it be different If I removed you from your life so that there's no self running your life, what would be different? In C.S. Lewis Institute, we're reading uh, The Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. And it's interesting that Bonhoeffer, the man who was the pastor in Germany who tried to kill Hitler, and he was hung 10 days before Hitler was defeated. He wrote this book, and Hitler, uh, Hitler read this book. He knew about this, and they had, uh, they used this against him. But the very first line in the foreword summarizes the book. When Christ calls a man, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he bids him come and die. Interesting. Today we're going to be talking about Christ-likeness. And we're in the middle of a, a series in the summer of thinking about change. And, and we've been thinking about lots of topics to keep you grounded in Christ. But we've been thinking about, if you remember back in June, we talked about walking with the peace of God. And the, there's the, uh, the peace of God and the God of peace. And there's, there are differences. And so having that relationship where you experientially know that, and feel, feel at times when God is working and even when he isn't working, you, you, you know there's, there's a deep sense of subtleness in your soul. That no matter where you go, you belong to Christ. And that idea that, that repentance and conversion and what it means to be born again, we've been talking about transformation and change. But we've been talking specifically how God uses the circumstances, the external temptations. He talks about the trials and the tests. We've been through some of those things to think that God is doing something inside of every Christian that you are being drawn closer into that relationship with Christ. So we've been talking about those things. And I, I was thinking about this again, coming at it in a different way to continue to deepen that conversation that, that I've noticed that there are a lot of people who try to live the Christian life, but there are very few who live their lives as Christians. And there's a difference. One's performance, one's relationship. But the Christian life, what Paul understood, what, what David understood, those men of, of old who really loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, there's something radically different that draws people to see Christ in us. There are some preconditions for this. You have to be born again. You have to have salvation. To be saved by grace is to know that God has touched you and has forgiven you and released you from the condemnation, from the faults and the sins and the damage that you have done to others. There's a sense that we all realize that we're not perfect at the surface level but when you get down to the fact that people suffer because of your sin. And that's a different level totally. 
and you get into that awareness, something happens. But you have to have this assurance that the death on the cross and the resurrection is real, one. But to believe that Jesus died and rose again is history. But to believe that Jesus died for you and rose for you is salvation. That's different. One is intellectual. One is so personal that I understand that Christ died for me. There's nothing more at the core that would release you from the self-centeredness to say that Christ loves you even when you don't love him. <clears throat> the second condition is, as Christians, you need to have this assurance of salvation, that this is the life, that he who has the Son has life, he who doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. And by our standing with the Lord regarding that salvation, we can move on to experience those promises, to experience more of those realities that he, that he, he was dealing with all the way through all these stories in the New Testament. But if you understand Christ at the center of the Christian life, then you understand this is not about you performing anything. It's not about your obligations. It's not about your disciplines. It's not about your church commitments. It's not about where you stand on issues. It's about Christ. You are in him, and he is in you. This is good news. You can have new life in Christ, but if you were to ask 10 Christians what the gospel is, you're going to get a lot of different answers. Now, the liberal people would say, well, he's, he's a, oh yeah, we, we admit he's a, he was a man, he's a good teacher, he's, he's a role model, he's an example, we got to live like Christ. That's not what we believe. We don't believe that Jesus came to set a standard just so we can fail it. It's a relationship, and so to believe that the gospel is what God has done for us apart from us, it's what God has done for us, apart from us, 2,000 years ago, to finish the work of salvation. What he promised, he did. And that external work is that which justifies us and gives us the positioning before God that we are accepted in him. It's what the gospel is what God has done for us. And so Christ transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This is what Christ did. And yet, that's not the end of it. Because the gospel is also the growth which the Holy Spirit brings by applying the gospel to saying that which Jesus did is now he's going to apply to my heart. And not only am I transferred, but I am transformed. And I know a whole lot of Christians don't understand that. And therefore, there's a lot of people who have to pretend that God is doing something in their life that he isn't doing. And so there's always this gap, this question mark. If people got close enough, they would find out I'm not spiritual enough, I don't know the Bible enough, I don't pray enough, I don't have enough faith, I, I act like the world. And sometimes when power goes out, as Bob Lamoureux would say, I say some non-Baptist words. Well, the idea is <clears throat> the gospel is what God does for us. <clears throat> the gospel is the Holy Spirit working in us. 
And the ministry of the gospel is what God does through us. And therefore, there's a whole lot of parts to this puzzle because when you try to figure it out, it's like it's a 5,000-piece puzzle. And every day when you get up to meet with the Lord, he gives you another piece. And you begin to see more clearly as you get older. You think, oh, this is what grace is about. You guys, have you done this? What you, what you believed when you were young Christians, you kind of said, ah, that's not so important now. But now this is really important. And you let go of some things, <clears throat> but you become more solid over the course of time. Paul said it this way, you were once darkness, but if you're in dark and that sun rises, that sun increases and increases, and so does your righteousness, so does your life, it changes. You are now light in the Lord, live as children as light. And we've talked about this, that last week when I said Paul, his whole ministry was helping midwife believers, helping the lost become saved, helping the saved become established, helping the established to move on out. But the idea that <clears throat> there's a labor involved, there's effort, and it's not just, I'm going to have a baby. Easy. Labor means pain. Labor means work. Labor means time. Ask any woman who's had kids. You're smiling. <laughs> so spiritual formation, discipleship, being made complete, enjoying the fullness, whatever you want to call it, this is the work of the Holy Spirit inside you and me. Now, I'm going to give you a test. As a professor, I'd always give tests, and so I'm going to give you a test. And you know this because you haven't heard it for a while. This is a review, and if you're a guest here, you, can, you get a pass. But there are five things that I am asking you to know and be able to speak about competently that make a biblical church. What is a biblical church? What is it that all Christians should be able to know intelligently and speak forthrightly about these five? What is a biblical church? There are five things. Christ-centered. Revelation. That's the next part. Next, before restorative. You guys are better. And that's the end. These are, these are, these are in order. So I, <clears throat> I keep doing this every, until everybody gets it. Did everybody know the next one? Redemption. And then? Yeah. And it's relational. I, this is a, not a big, good shot. But here's, it's this Christ and four R's. <clears throat> it's a Christian pirate. Christ, rawr. Christ-centered. And Christ-centered means it's Christ-centered. It's about Jesus himself. It's your devotion, your love to Christ. You should be enjoying more about loving Christ as you get older in Christ. But these things, you have to be based on the revelation of who he is. And that's the scriptures. That we understand that this is coming from above. And that our message is not our message. It's his message given to us. And that's the authority of scripture by which we live. But that whole message is about the gospel. And that gospel means you can have new life in Christ. And that which you once did and were is no longer going to be your identity. You have a whole new identity in Christ. But the two things that really focus on today is there's a restoration, transformation, change, name it, discipleship. 
And that is always in the context of relationships. And so if you do not find that the way you relate to people is changing, then you're missing the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, producing in you the fruit of grace, mercy, and love. Therefore, there's a lot of work. The fruit, as J.I. Packer said, is the wisdom that Jesus brings to you. You begin to think like he does. That peace, that humility, the love, and the root is in Christ, locked in step with walking with him. And that's manifested in our lives. Charles Stanley said it this way, it was a personal encounter with Jesus. It can radically change a life that seems hopeless. Oh, yesterday in Kairos, the three guys in the corner next to me were bringing up this conversation. Why would you want to go into the prison? Those guys really are worthless, the guy said to a Kairos volunteer. They, you're not going to make an investment because those guys really aren't going to really, you know, and so the Kairos guys were saying, well, how do you answer? Why do you go to somebody like this? Well, the reason why is because a leopard can't change his spots. But the Holy Spirit can change lives. And I've seen that change life. But the idea is to think that they are worse sinners than the guy who's questioning why would we go to those sinners. Somebody asks that question, they don't believe people can change. Jesus knows people can change. John Eldridge said it this way, this intimate encounter with Jesus is the most transforming experience of human existence. To know him as he is, is to come home. To have his life, the joy, the love, and the presence cannot be compared. A true knowledge of Jesus is our greatest need and our greatest happiness. And therefore, to think about all that we're talking about in terms of spiritual transformation. You may have religion, and you may not be transformed. You may have your doctrine, and you may not be transformed. But as I said yesterday, you cannot educate leprosy. You cannot educate cancer. It's not a mental thing. It's something radically inside that happens. I'm going to talk about one thing about what should happen for us today. But this is what Dallas Willard says. This is a spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness. That's not an educational thing. It's a spiritual relationship. And it's not going to happen unless we act, unless we respond. What transforms us is the will to obey Jesus. Therefore, when we sang that song, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Interest in the Savior's Blood, we will gladly sing that because we rejoice in that. We know salvation is free. We, we love God for that. But let me change the tune, keep the tune, change the words. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Holy Spirit? That the Holy Spirit would touch me in such a way or touch you in such a way that you understand what God did for you, what God does in you, and what God does through you. This idea that you are being called into something greater than yourselves, Christ-likeness, letting Jesus live in me, for me, through me. So there are three, there are three things. Um, there's one 
thing I want you to focus on, but there are some various parts to it. Christ in you, making you like Christ, Christ-likeness. Jesus, as you think about Jesus, Jesus was an open man. He was a free man. And every man he met, every woman he met, he gave grace to. He gave truth to. He gave uh, forgiveness and love. You see, Jesus was a selfless man. A selfless man. He was not preoccupied with his rights. He didn't care about his desires so much as he was considered, he wanted to live through the desires of his father. Jesus wasn't uh, absorbed, self-absorbed, self-preoccupied, not self-directed, not self-protective. But he was free to be Jesus. Though he, he didn't seem to be preoccupied with who he was. And that's why Jesus said, if you seek your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, if you lose yourself, you're going to find it. Jesus <clears throat> was a very open man. And whenever he met people, he made people feel accepted. Because he loved them. And uh, he knew how to connect with people. The problem is, not for us, uh, not, not that we can't be open. We can be open to people. But we're not going to be humble like Jesus. And the point of Christ's love and his openness is rooted in this one thing that he wants you to know and enjoy is his humility. Remember in Philippians 2 when it says that Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't say, well, hey, why do I have to go down there and be born through Mary and be a baby and be taken on this body? I don't let Brother Holy Spirit do that. I don't want to... No, he didn't, he didn't argue. He didn't complain. He says, Father, this is what you want me to do. I'll do it. He didn't regard equality a thing to be grasped, but he says he humbled himself. He emptied himself to the point of obedience. Now, you can be humble and civil, and, but this humility is a humility that takes the humility out of humility and off of humility and puts it onto the obedience of Christ. That's a different kind of change. It's like you're not being humble to be self-recognized as being humble. By the way, did you read my book, Humility and How I Attained It? It's got about 5,000 copies. I'm really proud of that book. It's, there's no sense of self in biblical humility. But the idea that the key to loving others, the key to the gospel that God did for us, in us, and through us, is the fact that this Holy Spirit is doing a work in helping us listen and engage others as God gives us the grace to get out of ourselves and be so focused on loving other people. This is radical. So let me ask you this. When has God helped you die? When has God helped you lay aside yourself? Think about your experiences in the past. When God's really trying to work this humility to become others-centered, 
Has that happened for you? Have you realized when that's happened? I was in uh, Butler University <coughs> with the navigators, and we were in a college. Uh, we were in a, a sorority, and our job was to uh, paint and maintain the sorority. And we'd have meetings there. And one night after dinner, my, our team, our job was a setup team, so we had to go after dinner, rush over to the, the dining room area and, or to this meeting room, and we had to rearrange the room and get the table set and chair set. But it was a particularly wet day, muddy day that day, and the foyer was really muddy and had to be washed. And so my job was to wash the, um, the foyer, so I had to mop it and get it. So I was doing that. And my team leader came in and said, uh, Jerry, we need you now. <clears throat> we need you in this room to help us. And my response was, okay, I'll be there in a minute because I want to finish. And I had just a four-by-four four section to finish. I want to finish. I'll be there in a minute. And he says, no, we need you right now. I said, okay, I'll, I'll be there in a minute. I won't get this done. No, Jerry, I need you now. And he said, <laughs> and I never had anybody challenge me on a decision that I was going to do things my way and I didn't need to have anybody interfere until I got my things done. You ever have that happen? You get irritated. People say, well, let me do it my way. And that little bit of self-centeredness came out. I'll do it on my time. I'll let you know when I'm ready. And that little selfish thing cracked open and my team leader saw that and he came to me afterwards and he said, Jerry, do you know when I called you, you made me work to get your attention. And it was very selfish of you because I needed you and you didn't come. Do you do this in other decisions you make? I thought, oh. He says, this is what God wants you to die to. I had never heard of that idea. It was brand new to me that my, I, me? Not do what I want to do? To do something else that somebody else wants me to do right now and let, let my agenda go? I was floored. I remember that afternoon thinking, or that evening thinking, God, what are you doing? What kind of God are you that I can't finish this floor? And, just, and it gave me a perspective, time to think, how many times in my life do I run my life according to my agenda? That's not humility may look Christian, may look justified, whatever, but God was speaking to me. When has God done that thing to you? In your relationships with your spouse, in your relationship with your kids or your parents. The idea that God wants to change us from the inside with humility because it's the humility of Christ that sets you free from yourself to be other-centered. Oh, D.L. Moody said it this way, be humble or stumble. Because God is opposed to the proud. And he can't use a proud man. He has to break a proud man. He broke Moses. He broke David. He broke Paul. He breaks our politicians who think they're arrogant. God is against the proud. And he calls them to come and die. And they say, no. I've got my agenda. For you, when has God worked on you? <clears throat> when he's teaching you. And that's why Jesus said, you have a cross to bear. Every day, you have to die daily. 
to the self-centeredness. Not just, that's not the goal, just to die. Because we know because of the gospel, there's something after the tomb. There's a resurrection. And if there's no death, there's no resurrection. If there's no death to self, there's no living for Christ. And therefore, we are required <clears throat> to move in a way. And that's what we teach in Kairos. We teach here at the church the humility of Christ is the mindset that we are to live, uh, live out. And therefore, it keeps our focus off ourselves. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I love that. That's a good quote. And therefore, when you think about all this week, what we go through, what you're going through, circumstances outside, circumstances on the inside, and can it be that you should gain an interest in that Savior's blood? And can it be that you should gain an interest in the Savior's work in transforming you right in those circumstances? We sing, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Something is filling your heart. It's going to be you or Christ. You can't serve two masters. And whatever master you serve is filling up your heart. So this week as you go forth and you think about this transformation, the point I want you to think about is, is this humility of Christ in you to be others-centered. The idea that you can live a life this week and asking the Holy Spirit to shift you out of yourself, to die, to take up the cross, and live in the power of the resurrection. Now that sounds like a, a mouthful, and it is. But this week, what I want you to do is when you go through the week, I want you to have your antenna up. And I want you to ask God to show you where your agenda is your agenda. And ask you to learn to say, yes, Christ, no to yourself. And be free in grace to continue out that love. It's a good news to live the Christian life, have new life in Christ, but you are called to die. So I'm inviting you um, to a private funeral every day in your closet with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you really, <laughs> you threw us all for a loop. The fact that you would touch others and be that open because you are free of yourself and you, you want us to be like you. Sometimes, Father, we just would run to that. Sometimes we're scared to death and we have no idea what we're doing. But Lord, get us out of the way. You must increase and we must decrease. So help us, Father, knowing, knowing that we are struggling with selfishness and our sin. We need you more and more. Thank you that you have good news for us, good news in us, and good news through us. So Father, it's for your glory and our growth we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.